0: I'm grateful to be talking about something that I'm, I'm really passionate about. I'm, I'm grateful to be chatting with you about uh, what is a human being? What is a human being? And, and uh, being able to sort of dig into the scriptures and get some answers to this question that I think um, all of us, and maybe we haven't phrased it that way, but we've certainly struggled with it. Who am I? Who am I? What am I about? And you could go through maybe your own personal history in your head for a moment. Uh, you remember the challenge of, of thinking about who you were as you went through your adolescence, uh, as, a, as a young adult and for those of us here who um, maybe you have gone through midlife crises or retirement or different phases of life, you, you sort of always ask this question and, and you come up with different answers sometimes depending on what the culture around you tells you about where you are. Um, but God has an answer for us that never changes. Uh, it's based on his design for what a human being is supposed to be. Uh, and so we're going to look closely at Psalm 8 this morning. You might want to turn there in your Bible. The first thing I want to point out about this is that is that there's a there's a particular setting that the psalmist uh, throws out for us. He's uh, he's he's put himself in this position of being sort of out in the fields in, in the middle of nowhere where you can see the stars. And two nights ago, we were in uh, rural Virginia beautiful farmhouse, and, and I went outside and, and had that just magic experience of looking up at a completely empty sky, no moon, no clouds, nothing but, but stars, just pouring down uh, onto these hills in the Catawba Valley, and it was absolutely spectacular. Uh, a lot of people ask me, since we're going to Kilimanjaro, if, if I'm going to be climbing Kilimanjaro. Uh, I am not probably going to climb all the way to the top, I don't know if you know much about uh, the mountains in Colorado compared to Kilimanjaro. Colorado, you start about, you know, 6,000 feet or something like that, and then you start going up to about 14. It's only 8,000-foot difference. And Kilimanjaro starts, you know, much, much lower than that and goes much, much higher so that by the time you get to the top, you're incredibly sick. The altitude sickness is messing with your mind and, and things like this. And I'm not an overly athletic person anyway, so let's not press it, right? Let's not try to get all the way to the top. But what I really want to do, I really want to go up to 12,000 feet and spend the night above the atmosphere and, and see the southern hemisphere sky. I've got an astronomy itch I I get to scratch every once in a while. And I want to see that and just see how good God is to do that kind of magic in the sky. Really appreciate that. Um, And when the psalmist looks at the sky, he he doesn't see what what some people in our world today see. He doesn't see a random, accidental collection of atoms. He doesn't see just pure chaos that, that happens to randomly work its way into particular formations. He doesn't see... Uh, up close, you know, if you're in a star, if you just kind of magically could zoom up to our sun, you just see roiling, boiling flames everywhere, and it would look just like pure chaos. And, and maybe your life looks a little bit like that up close. Um, but what's interesting is that he, he gets to kind of step back and, and see not the chaos up close, but what God is doing with the whole thing. And he says, this, this portrait of the sky reminds me a little bit of my life, and it makes me think about who I am. And what's fascinating to me is that it doesn't just make him feel small. When I'm out in the middle of nowhere, when I'm looking at the stars, reflecting on God's handiwork, I feel puny. And I'm 6'3", and, and over 200, just to give you a general idea. I won't go into specifics. But I'm not a small person, and, and I feel puny compared to the night sky. That is not what happens with, with David. This psalm is an invitation to step back and to look at, at, at yourself in, in view of God's awesome handiwork and to see that you matter far more than most people would tell you you matter, uh, and you matter in ways that maybe never dawned on you to, to really think through or process. And what is he doing? He's reflecting on, on what he knows, good biblical theology. He's reflecting on Genesis one, that passage that we read earlier. He's reflecting on God's original design for humanity. Well, let's start with this. Then there's going to be three things we talk about, and we'll have a bunch of S's. So um, if you're the kind of person who uh, likes that sort of alliteration, um, let's start with this: our sovereign and our status, our sovereign and our status. Most of the translations you have uh, start, "O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Uh, the NRSV says, "O Lord, our sovereign. Um, and, and, and this is, um, I don't know if you're like me, the, the word Lord, maybe you grew up in church, you've heard it all your life, and it's just like another name for Jesus. It just kind of goes in one out the ear and out, uh, you know, out the other, comes out of your mouth. There's no real um, depth of meaning to that word other than the fact that you're referencing God. But the psalmist here has something really particular in mind. It's the the first Lord here is Yahweh, if you want to put it into English. And the second Lord, we might better translate it as King. O Yahweh, our King. And when I think of it that way, it has a lot more resonance to me. We have a sovereign. We have somebody on a throne. And and this is really the most fundamental fact about God. We're going to Uh, We're going to reference, I think, Isaiah 6 in one of the songs that's upcoming. Is that right? Um, um, And and Isaiah goes into the temple, and and what does he see? He sees God enthroned. He sees Yahweh enthroned in his temple. And wherever you go in the Bible, if you scratch the Bible, it bleeds royalty. This is the most fundamental fact about God. Not that he's your your buddy. uh, Not that he's, you know, someone who's there with you, comforting you. It's that he is king that he's king. So our modern translations maybe, maybe mask this a little bit uh, for us. And his awesome enthronement in heaven makes us look, uh, look pretty small. Um, but what we learn here is that God's got a, a plan for you. God has a design for you so that no matter how awesome he is, he is not going to leave you sort of in the dust. Remember, you started in the dust, as the, the story goes in Genesis 1. And God was not content to leave you there. He wanted to make something beautiful out of you. And so he gathered up dust and he made his own image. He made, in the Hebrew, the word is idol, Salem. uh Elsewhere in the Old Testament, this is the word that you would see for idol. He made an idol. One of the reasons in, in biblical religion you don't need an idol is because God already took care of that. And he designed people who would look like him, who would reflect his creativity, who would reflect his beauty and his, his thoughtfulness, his joy at his creation. He's, he's just dancing with delight over how awesome the world he made is. And, and hopefully you are too. Hopefully you have a little bit of that characteristic of God in you that you love his, his creation. You think this place is worth preserving and you're looking forward to the day when it's going to be remade. Um, Aubrey mentioned my interest in imitating Jesus. And and one of the most important things I've learned about that is that um, for for many Christians, imitating Jesus is sort of divorced from God's character. You're just supposed to be nice like Jesus is nice. Well, in, in the Bible's way of looking at it, imitating Jesus is based on your reflection of God, your imitation of God. We have this old word that we used to use, godly, do y'all remember that word? Maybe you grew up in church and, and people used words like that, and that word has sort of fallen out of, of favor. It means God-like, literally. You're reflecting his holiness and his righteousness. Well, all those things are, are, are pretty wonderful. But there's three here in Psalm 8 that we want to explore in particular. The sovereignty of God, our sovereign, and then our status that he produces in us. The first, uh, the first is, is um, a little bit surprising. We're, I know we're in Mennonite country, um, but this is about warfare. Um, but the Mennonites have this one right. Look at, look at uh, verse 2. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. This God has a way of using unexpected things. Right? Praise from the lips of kids or, or the confession of a dying person who has no more strength in, in life to glorify himself and to win his battle over, in, over Satan and over evil. Um, that's a shocking weapon in a world where, where our country is sort of on the cusp of you know, punching its frequent bomber card again. Uh, we're, you know, we're the strongest nation in the world and we, we like people to know that fact about us. Um, and here's God, the strongest being in the universe, who's delighting in using very small things, broken things, things that aren't particularly, people that aren't particularly powerful to win his war. That's why he uses a cross as the ultimate instrument of warfare against Satan and evil and sin. That's the first thing we see. Um, and then we see... Um, verse 3 and 4, we see God's care. What kind of a king is he? He's not just a king who's engaged in warfare in a surprising way. He's a God who cares for us. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you have set in place, what is man that you were mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Okay, so obviously the fact that God is king is not, uh, is not very American, right? Uh, what, what's on the Virginia state flag? You guys probably all know this, right? Um, it, it's not very flattering to monarchy. Let's just put it that way. I won't, won't describe it uh, at the moment. But, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't just resonate with royalty, okay? So, to put it mildly. But this king is, is not, a, not a tyrant. He's a king who cares for us. And the good news of the fact that you were owned by this king, here's the good news. You aren't ultimately responsible for your welfare. You need to be responsible, sure, But who is ultimately in charge of whether you eat or drink or whether you're clothed or fed? If you remember Matthew 6, your Father in heaven knows you need all these things. And you can put your life in his hands and you can seek his kingdom. You can throw yourself at his mercy because he delights in caring for us. That's the good news of being owned by this king. And then the third thing, and this is the biggest one uh, for, for Psalm 8, uh, and, and maybe the most surprising. You know, we, we talked about all those all those things that that uh, help us to 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 image God in the world and, and philosophers and theologians have sort of wrestled with the root meaning of, uh, of what it, what, what image-bearing means. What does it mean that we're the image of God? Is it about the fact that we're rational and, and animals aren't? The fact that we're creative and, and others are not creative? George MacDonald, it, it, it sort of basically it boils down to this. Uh, it depends on whatever your profession is. That's the thing that you pick as the most important thing about the image of God. Uh, uh, George MacDonald, the, the, the novelist that C.S. Lewis loved, he thought creativity was the obviously. Uh, and then a lot of philosophers because they like the head stuff. Uh, well, obviously it's the fact that you're rational. That's, that's what the, where the image of God is located. We don't have time to get too into it this morning. I'm going to tell you that the most basic fact about image bearing is this. It means that you were made to rule. You were made to rule. You were a prince or a princess in God's kingdom. The old-fashioned term would be vice-regent. You're the number two. And that means that you're not on top of the heap. You're not on top of the hierarchy of, of lordship in the universe. Uh, it's probably good news. At least I think that's good news. Um, but it does mean that you're incredibly important and that God gave you a place to rule. So if you remember Genesis 1, we won't turn back there. Repeatedly, you have, you have a couple words that just repeat throughout there over, 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 over. I think eight times in that sequence. You rule over something. And what the, what, what the writer of Genesis is trying to do is trying to get you to see your enthronement. And he's repeating it because he thinks you probably won't believe it. Right. I think he's probably right. And here in Psalm 8, we have the same thing. We have uh, six different creatures uh, represented. Uh, maybe that's because the biblical number for a human is six, and he just pulls out six creatures. And you as a human being, you rule over all these things. And they're found in four different spheres, the domestic sphere, the, the wild sphere, the skies, the, the, the oceans, and maybe that, the, the number four usually signifies the whole earth. It's something about the, you know, the four corners of the earth and four winds and those sorts of things. So, so the, thing, the thing here that we see here is that, that you're supposed to rule over the whole world. This is, your, this is your original design. This is what you are. You're a king or a queen. I hope that's good news to you. I hope that's helpful to you this morning. And you see this pop up again and again in Scripture. You see it in Daniel 7, where uh, there's this wonderful vision of, of God and who is God. God is king, and he's enthroned. Well, who else is enthroned? The Son of Man is enthroned. And then right after the description of the enthronement of the Son of Man, and he says, the saints of God will reign forever and ever. Anybody like that? Okay. Uh, I'm from Texas, so we think that we're important. Um, and I, I like that, you know. Uh, that sort of confirms my, my bias. But on the other hand, I've, I've been paying attention uh, to the human condition. And, and I know that, that there's something about this that makes me really uncomfortable. Uh, and if, if, if Yahweh showed up to my consulting company, we're bankrupt, by the way, we're out of business, not doing this anymore. Uh, and, and he said, you know, uh, what do you think about this plan? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to enthrone humans over the whole world. I'd say, look, let's, let's, uh, let's do something a little less risky, Yahweh. All right? Let's go with dolphins or German shepherds. Um, let's, let's, if you want a, a mouthpiece, we can get a nice African gray parrot or something. Let's not use human beings. That's too risky. All right? And God, fortunately, did not consult my consulting company. All right. And we'll come back and we'll deal with this solution, but let's talk about skepticism and sin. Um, this is our second set of S's, skepticism and sin. And this is the obstacle. This is where my confusion comes in, and maybe your concerns come in as well. Uh, we live in a day where the nature of a human being is totally up for grabs. You can be uh, whatever you want. Um, some people would, would teach us that you can, you can be whatever gender you choose. Um... And and it's important for us to remind ourselves that that the nature of a human being has always been contested. That what the Bible is doing here is not something that everyone in the ancient world would have agreed with. And I'll I'll give you an ancient example, contemporary example. There's a letter we dug out of the ground to King Esarhaddon of Assyria a couple hundred years after David wrote this psalm. Uh, And there's a line in there that says, that's just flattering the king, but this is standard ancient ideology. He says, the king is a mirror of the gods. A man is a shadow of the king. And a slave is a shadow of a man. You see the hierarchy? See the hierarchy? And in Genesis 1 and in Psalm 8, we learned that that's just not true. Can you imagine these slaves leaving Egypt where... See where Pharaoh was the the image of God? He was the one who imaged God, was made in the likeness of God. Not everybody, certainly not Hebrew slaves. And they go out in the wilderness and Moses says, "Hey, you guys, you know who you are?" "Yeah, we're we're slaves." "No, you are made in the image of God, male and female, humankind, all in the image of God. And you were all made to rule." Can you imagine how that would start to warm your heart? if all you would ever known was an ideology that said, you're a shadow of a man, and the, the man is a shadow of the king. King's the real image of God. We have the same problem today. We have people who tell us that, uh, that basically we are God. Uh, maybe you've heard of the book Eat, Pray, Love, or you saw the movie Eat, Pray, Love, and uh, there, was a, there was a really interesting review in the, the New York Times uh, and the, the reviewer is sort of, you know, helping people. He's a Catholic. He, he's helping people process the, the book a little bit. Uh, and he says there's, there's a, this, is, this is a very theological film, and much more theological than films normally are. He says, he says, you know, this woman is like a modern Pilgrim's Progress. She's like going around the world trying to figure out who she is. The quest is not, where am I going Or to whom do I owe my life? The the quest for the modern person is, who am I? That's a wonderful question, but you don't want to have your whole life revolve around that. That's why Psalm 8 starts with, O Lord, our King. That's why Genesis 1 starts with the Creator. And here's what happens to the woman. She goes around, she has this voyage of discovery, um, and and she basically uh, learns that she is God. She says, God dwells with me as me. Which is why, in the book and in the movie, everything that she desires has to happen. She's got to be able to leave her husband for selfish reasons, shack up with a guy, dump him for selfish reasons, um, you know, travel, pray, do all these other things, and then finally find another person that she hooks up with. I mean, why does she have to do all these things? Why does the journey look like that? Because she's God. She's deified. And what Psalm 8 is telling us is that you're important and you're enthroned, but you're still underneath the sovereign lord of the universe. You're still underneath the king. And so even after we have that arrangement, of course, we have this problem. We're, we're sinful. Blaise Pascal, the, the French mathematician and philosopher, said that the more enlightened we become, the more aware we become. And he's, he's writing in the 19th century after, after the enlightenment has happened. And, and he's, he's asking this question, did that really solve our problems? Do we really know who we are now and sort of elevating ourselves to, to this deified position. And Pascal says no. He says the more enlightened we become, we discover two things about ourselves. The more enlightened we become, the more greatness and vileness we discover in humanity. And that's a problem. The more, the more greatness we discover, the, the, the beauty of art, the beauty of the human capacity to accomplish things uh, is very impressive. We also discover how sinful we are the more we learn. And so what do we do with that? The, the Bible's message is this, that Jesus came to save sinners. And not just, to, not just to save their souls, to completely recreate them. This is why in the beautiful passage we read in, in Mark 5, Jesus puts a, an unhuman person back together. Right? It's, a, it's a man who's, who's demon-possessed, and he, he's basically been rendered almost subhuman. He can't relate to other people. He can't work and, and hold a job. He can't do all these things that God made humans to do. Live in community, be fruitful, multiply, help other people flourish. This man can do none of that. And Jesus fixes it. In Ephesians 4, that we read, we see this, uh, this confrontation with the world that, that Jesus solves. He says, look, you used to live like the Gentiles in sensuality, impurity, greed, and now you are being recreated and your mind is being renewed. And I absolutely love the way this description um, uh, sort of flows in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. He's putting human beings back together again. And just, just one snapshot, 428, I think it is, he says, let the thief who stole steal no longer. Okay, that's just good morality, but then he goes one step further, because remember, you're becoming truly human again. You're being restored in Christ. Let the thief who who stole steal no longer, but rather let him work with his hands so that he might have something to share with someone in need. It's this little snapshot, but the whole passage is about that. Uh, it, it's, it's about reorienting your desires, reorienting uh, your family life, your, your sex life, uh, reorienting uh, your relationship with your parents so that that breach is healed, reorienting your relationship to employers and employees. It's more human. It's more truly human. The reaction to this, how, how's the world going to respond to this? Well, it's not always going to be positive. Uh, I can't remember how far we got in Mark 5, but, but here's what happens in this little village where this man lived this dehumanizing, demon-possessed life. He goes back to his, to his people, and they are afraid. Okay, and, and some of them go to Jesus and say, Look, I don't know who you think you are, but you have messed with our normal Jesus. Okay, And they beg him to leave. They beg him to leave. And isn't the way that is sometimes with, with, with people, not just in the world, people in the church. If Jesus is messing with your normal, you sort of just disinvite him, right? Maybe by not pursuing him in, in quiet times. Maybe by um, just, just sort of shielding a particular area of your life from him. This is just going to be the area where Jesus doesn't get involved. What a, what a tragic thing. That the God who shows up and wants to make you more what you were originally designed to be would be pushed away from your life. And so we can expect those those two responses. Um, so I, my, my father-in-law had uh, six or seven bouts of cancer. Uh, and, and what's amazing to me is that um, uh, like his, his demeanor through that as a Christian was really just Incredible. I, you got to live with him and got to sort of nurse him through this experience, and, and it was incredibly painful, and there was sin and ugliness and all that stuff involved. But the general tenor of his suffering glorified God. And it was because God had made him a new creation. His oncologist uh, in Memphis uh, had seen hundreds of people die. He was converted as an adult. And one of the big things behind his conversion was this experience of seeing hundreds of Christians die and seeing hundreds of people who didn't have the hope of Christ die. And he saw a difference, and he knew he had to have it. And here's the sophisticated physician who should theoretically know better, should be enlightened, shouldn't, shouldn't run after this, seeing Jesus fixing people, fixing their hearts, and giving them the promise that one day he would raise them from the dead. This is he raised Jesus. You raise them back to life and back to, this, back to this beautiful destiny. So sometimes there's confusion. Sometimes there's this repulsion of Jesus. And sometimes when Jesus does this to you, you're going to shine like a light, maybe even when you're dying. All right. So significance and security. Significance and security. Let's look at our last, uh, last section of, of, of S's here. I think this is, this is really important because this changes how you view yourself and it changes how you view your neighbors. It changes how you view the people on, on Franklin Road or, or Chicago or whatever lane or road you live in. It changes how you view your dorm at, at JMU. It changes how you view your kids. Here's what C.S. Lewis said about human beings. He's one of the, one of the writers, I think, who, who really gets this uh, about, uh, about the Christian message. He says, it's hardly possible for us to think too often or too deeply about the future glory of our neighbor. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you may talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. He says, all day long, we're in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinies. Um, he says, you've, you've, um, it is in light of these overwhelming possibilities with awe and the circumspection proper to them. So, it's just this, this fear of, 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 of living in this in incredibly potent world with incredibly potent people. Um, that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All our friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. And I would add, there are no ordinary vocations as a result of this. You have never met a mere mortal. Um, and this is, this is Lewis's vision of what it means to be a human being. So when he says, uh, an off-quoted passage, when he says that, that to be heavenly-minded is, is to be the most earthly good, I think this is what he has in mind. To be mindful of what God has designed human beings to be and what he's committed to making human beings. And that can transform your everyday work, that can give security, uh, significance to what you do day in, day out, um, regardless of, of what you're doing. You know, for, for many of us, we get our significance from, uh, from, from our work, from what we do day in, day out. God wants you to get your significance from who you are in Christ, this recreated person who's going to be a king or a queen. You, you, you maybe, maybe you compare yourself to the superstars uh, in uh, your uh, fraternity or sorority, maybe it's the superstar moms that you're comparing yourself to. Uh, maybe it's uh, it's the it's the people who really have their vocation together and really seem like they're doing something for God in their vocation, and you're really impressed with this. All right? I slept in an awesome bunk bed put together by an artist last night. It was incredible. I mean, I was just in awe of this little structure that I was in. It's hard to get to sleep because it was it was uh, uh, it was it was really really cool. Um, and 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 so we can compare ourselves and compare what we're doing to other people i i'll be honest with you there are about i don't know 500 people i know who i think would be more useful in tanzania than than me and my wife um i i her her brother is a banker they need bankers they need microfinance they need macrofinance uh and her our sister-in-law is uh is a, a, a physician, we need physicians there, you know, they, they need physicians there. They, there's, there's all kinds of people who would be much more useful than I would be there. Um, sort of tempted with that thought frequently. Um, but I'll also pitch that to you guys because there's, there, there, there may be a place for you in Tanzania. I just want to throw that out. Um, all right. But my significance is not rooted in, in, in what I do day in, day out. It's rooted in who God says I am. Henry Cloud, the Christian counselor, says that people typically struggle with one of two things in their life, with with significance or security, with knowing that they matter or knowing that that they're not going to just fall to pieces, that life is not just going to fall apart on them. And here in Psalm 8, we have a vision of a God who takes care of your significance and takes care of your security. And he knows what you need, and he is mindful of you, and he knows who you are, and he cares for you. And he's made you far more significant than you could ever imagine being on your own. Your inner Freud that tells you you're only as good as your romantic life. Your inner Marx that tells you you're only as good as your economic life. Um, uh, Your inner Thomas Jefferson that tells you you're only as good as, you know, the, the patriot, you know, American loving person you're supposed to be. Whatever it is. Your inner Nancy Grace right, with the justice streak that sort of stands back and accuses you of not living up to what you want to live up to. Um, None of those things is the ultimate factor in your significance. It's who Jesus says you are. And Jesus said, I loved you, I died for you, and I've made you part of my life. And in me, you are now re-enthroned. Right now, Ephesians 2 says, right now you are enthroned over the universe with Christ. You're seated with him in heavenly places. And why would he do that? Because that's God's original design. That's what he made you for. And one day he's going to remake you and remake the world. And he's going to put you on that throne again. There's a little prayer that that I've learned to pray. It's uh, fairly helpful. Um, Lord, help me believe that what you say about me is true no matter how wonderful it is. And you, maybe you need a caveat with that. Maybe, maybe you also need to pray, Lord, help me to believe that what you say about me is true, no matter how terrible that news is. Okay, Because he also has that word for us. But in Christ, I'm, I'm seated with him. And I'm significant. And I hope that's encouraging to you this morning. Let's pray.